Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? May I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the forest of the citadel, by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and dung gate examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool but there was not enough room for my mount to get through so I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gates. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you... You have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. As we read Nehemiah, we need to um, be careful. We need to tread a quite a careful path. And it's the same with all kinds of books like this, actually, in the Old Testament. The danger is we simply read ourselves into the story. We are the hero, if you like, of the story. We, we see ourselves as Nehemiah, and there's something very natural and human about that. It's the bent of our hearts. 
There's something very contemporary about that. It's the reality of the culture we live in, the culture of self, and even historically in church, there's something in that. There have been numerous books written about Nehemiah, particularly, for example, on leadership. I've read them and they're very good. I have one on my shelf at home. I'll even recommend it to you. But here's the problem. Here's why we need to tread the careful path. And Andy reminded of it last week. We're not that important. We're the ones in the background. You see, Nehemiah, we said, end of last week, final verse there, he was the cupbearer to the king. He had status, authority, power, opportunity. And so in a sense, as we read Nehemiah, he is the, the Christ figure. He is the one who is building the city of God. He is the one who is leading the people of God. He is the one that God is using to come to deal with a big problem. And on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, these, these books, the Old Testament scriptures, they testify about me. These are books ultimately about me, he says. That doesn't mean we've got nothing to say to us about how we live. As we read Nehemiah, we don't just go one way and say, well, it's all about Jesus. Scripture is much more multi-layered than that. We need to be much more careful as we read. So we might be in the background, but in a sense, as Andy said last week, we're, we're still in the story. We are the followers. We're the, still the ones who head back with Nehemiah and are put to work, as we'll see, rebuilding the city. We still have a part to play. And so as we approach scriptures like this, bits of the Bible like this, we need a kind of double vision. A kind of double vision that means we're able to see what the Lord is teaching us about Christ through Nehemiah, because ultimately it's about him but also what it means about us. Maybe even gleaning examples of how we lead. Maybe what wise, glorifying life looks like. People who lead God. People who lead folk to God. So we need a double vision as we read, which is quite hard to do at times. But let's try and jump into the text, see if we can do that, and try and keep both perspectives in mind as we look at it. Um, most of you will know I'm a stickler for two-point sermons because my brain doesn't quite work with three-point sermons. So we've got two points today. Um, our first one is the first little chunk from verse 1 uh, to 8. Um, thinking about boldness and humility. So particularly as Nehemiah approaches the king, how does he do it? And then we'll see um, from 9 to 20 as well. The second point, blessings and hardship. But firstly, boldness and humility, verse 1 to 8. Um, we can tell... But there's about a four-month gap between verse 11 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2. Why the gap? Why the delay? Why has he done nothing about it? There's speculation. Maybe he's waiting. Maybe he's waiting for the right moment. Maybe that's why it's been four months. We've seen in the last chapter, I guess, that we have this humble request. Do you remember last week before the king of the universe? He describes himself as a servant. He comes to God. He confesses sins. That was chapter 1. Well, in chapter 2, then, we have the humble request before the king of Persia. Here he comes bringing his petition, not to the God of the universe, but to the man in charge of the kingdom. And as we said, he was the cupbearer to the king, which is about as high as you could get in Persia at the time. He is, if you like, the top of the tree if you're an exile. And the account takes place in, in the palace and Nehemiah is doing what he does best which is um, bearing the cup for the king. But the king notices something is wrong. Verse 2. 
Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? Nehemiah, why the long face? What, what's going on? Tell me. What's happening? And despite this obvious reticence before the king, he opens up and he tells him the situation. Now, I'm told that culturally the Persians, rather like the Israelites, cared about where their dead were buried. And so when he says in verse 3, do you see, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire, I'm told he is very much speaking their language. He's speaking in a way that the Persians will understand, that the king gets. He's kind of playing the right kind of cards. He's being wise as he speaks to the king, King Artaxerxes. In modern terms, we might say that Nehemiah is, um, is contextualising his message. He's communicating in a way that the king understands, that resonates, that he would be understood. And so Artaxerxes takes the bait and responds... Verse 4, what is it that you want? And Nehemiah responds in turn. How does he do that? Firstly, he, he fires this famous arrow prayer in verse 4. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Remember the God of heaven? He's the great and awesome God of chapter 1. He's the God who keeps the, his covenant of love in chapter 1. He's the God who, who loves those who love him and obey his commands, chapter 1. And so he comes before this king again this God again, and prays again, but in a very different way. Chapter 1 was a long prayer of confession, of lament. Chapter 2 is a prayer like that. We'll think more about that in a bit. The first thing he does, he prays, chapter four, sorry, verse 4, two, verse 4, and then he speaks, and he goes for it in verse 5, and, and he wants to go back to the city in Judah and to go and rebuild it. He doesn't just ask for that though, verse 7 and 8. He is bold. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that I will, they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, etc., etc., etc. So he wants safe passage, verse 7. He wants wood, in verse 8. Can we have timber? Can we... Have a letter means I can cut down trees to rebuild the city. And again, as with last week, he approaches the king with humility. He asks with humility. And the king grants his request. Strikingly, the king grants his request not because he's a skillful negotiator, not because he's earned favour with the king, not because the king owes him one, verse 8 see his humility because the hand of my God was on me the king granted my request as you read Nehemiah the, the hand of God is an interesting idea it's an interesting concept it's a recurring thing that comes again and again we had it last week I think in 1 verse 10 um, your mighty hands do you see God's mighty hand that redeems his servants that brings about his purposes that shows his covenant faithfulness and kindness to his people. And so here again we have God's mighty hand not in the big redemption stuff but in the little things. The little things of life. God's gracious hand at work, active, able. Again, working out his plans and purposes for his people because he is faithful to his covenant. Unless we think, well, God's gracious hand means we don't have to bother 
He is still wise, he still asks the king, it doesn't just fall into his lap. There's this interesting interplay going on in Nehemiah as well of, of God's gracious hand at work, God's sovereignty at work, and yet then the people of God, Nehemiah particularly, being bold and skillful and prayerful and wise as he interacts. I take it that's a helpful model for Christian living. It's worth just pulling into a lay-by there and noticing that. We said it before, but it's the ability to both pray as if it's all about God and yet work as if it's all about us in some sense. Working hard and yet praying hard. Trusting him and yet active. Getting on with stuff. It's striking. A number of us, it's slightly pulling into a lay-by here, but a number of people at the moment at Modern Road are talking about a sort of a heaviness, a desire to seek the Lord's face more in stuff. To, To ask him that his hand would be upon us in what we do. To be prayerful. To remember some of the G's we've been thinking about in the morning. His goodness, his greatness, his graciousness. Trusting him, seeking his face, trusting his sovereignty, and yet not at the expense of active obedience. And so it seems here Nehemiah has this, this balance, this biblical perpendicular of trusting God in his prayers, and yet wisely, faithfully, skillfully approaching the king. This humble boldness. Verse 1 to 8. Verse 9 to 20 though, we see his prayers were answered, but we see the working out of them as well. And so we see blessing and hardship. Verse 9, he gets the letters he wanted. They're given for safe passage. They're given for timber and trees so they can cut down stuff and build and rebuild. But it's actually more than that as well. Do you see, end of verse 9, they give him security. He gets the king's security guards, army officers, cavalry. What on earth would make the king of the Persian superpower grant his cupbearer extended leave, later we find out it's 12 years of extended leave, to go home and rebuild his city, to grant him safe passage, to grant him timber, to grant him security. What on earth would make the Persian king do that? Well, the answer is nothing on that. The answer is the God of heaven. The God of heaven and his mighty hands. And if I'm honest, about this point, I think, well, great. Surely this is the book kind of wrapped up then. Surely it's going to be downhill and easy from here. The Lord has blessed him. He's, he's opened up doors. He's provided more than they asked for. And I wonder if that's why verse 9 leads into verse 10. Because suddenly in verse 10 we see opposition. With blessings, very often comes hardship and opposition. The hardship and the opposition here have names. Verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonites, they heard about this, they were disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And these guys will crop up a bit later tonight, but in future weeks as well. These hardships have names. They're real people who want to block the work of God. 
have a look down and see how this blocking, this opposition, these hardships happen. They get to Jerusalem. Then you see verse 11, there's a three-day wait. Nehemiah and a few select others sneak off into the night for a bit of a reconnaissance mission. So verse 13, they clarify it's by night. Verse 15 again, um, by night. He checks out the various gates, he checks out the walls. Is it really as bad as I've heard it is? I want to go and see this with my own eyes. And he does, and gets to verse 14, I think it's likely there, he has to put his horse in reverse, back down the street because it is so destroyed and decimated. And you see, depending on how our double vision is doing as we read this book, as we read chapter 2, you can get quite excited by the model of leadership that Nehemiah brings at about, about this point. If you think this is primarily a book about Christian leadership, then, well, of course, here is a, a lesson that we're to go and plan and to prepare before we start doing something. Here's a lesson, perhaps, that we're to take a few people with us before we take everyone with us. I wonder if that's slightly pushing things. Clearly we can see he is wise and sensitive. He is humble and bold. Clearly he seeks the Lord's glory above his own. Clearly there are lessons here to be learned about opposition when the Lord brings blessing. But as we said, I think Nehemiah is primarily a book about Christ. Jesus told us it was. What's his report off the back of this nighttime scouting mission? What are his two reasons that he comes back for wanting to rebuild? Well, have a look down. Um, there's one in, in verse 17. It's, it's the news report that he's already had. We had it back in 1 verse 3 as well. A very similar language to the 1 verse 3 from last week. It's the trouble and disgrace that he speaks of. And so in verse 17 then, chapter 2, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. So the trouble is the lack of defence. There are no ramparts, there's no protection. He wants to rebuild to defend themselves very practically. That's clearly obvious. But then there's disgrace as well. Trouble and disgrace. It was back in chapter 1 and verse 3. It's here too. The disgrace of being a ruined city, a laughing stock. Who is this God whom you believe in? He's not really turned up, has he? Is he really good? Does he, is he really there? Does he really exist? And so Nehemiah wants to rebuild for practical reasons, but for persecution reasons as well. He doesn't want them to be a disgrace anymore. So there's the first one. There's the first reason that he wants to rebuild. The second one is there in verse 18 as well. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. And what the king had said to me. You see, he, he says, listen to how God has been at work. Listen to his faithfulness in answering prayers. Listen to the way that Artaxerxes has given us not just what we ask for, but even more than we ask for. This can only be the hand of God. And so they say, okay, let's start rebuilding. And so they begin the good work. End of verse 18. And again, following the blessing comes the opposition. We get Sanballat and Tobiah again, and they brought a friend with them this time. 
a guy called Gishem, the Arab, and they mock them and they ridicule them, verse 19. What is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And he answers them, you see, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. We'll hear more about them in, in later weeks, but just just for now, there's a striking thing that goes on. As far as we can tell, Sanballat and Tobiah were likely local governors of the area. So they were kind of political rulers, different areas of land nearby. And we learn from elsewhere that Sanballat probably ruled over bits of Samaria, Tobiah over Ammonite territory. So maybe there's opposition from these two because they're just a bit twitchy. Nose is getting out of joint because Nehemiah comes with a letter from the king saying, we're going to rebuild and the king has given his blessing, and so he's unbalancing the kind of political stability in the area. Then you get this third guy, um, Gisham the Arab, and he's an interesting one, he's a slight mystery. Um, you can take this fairly loosely, but there is, there's evidence from outside the Bible of an individual at the time who, who was a local character in the area, and with his son he grows very, very powerful. He's some sort of trader, I'm engaging in a lucrative trade around the area. And maybe, again, he feels threatened by Nehemiah's plans. In one sense, it doesn't matter that much. What's clear is you've got these different individuals united against Nehemiah. United in their antagonism against Nehemiah's project to build the city of God. It wasn't going to be an easy project to finish. That's a kind of speedy overview. Chapter 2. I think I've got about six applications for us to chew over. Yep, six. Um, so, who, with six applications, maybe grab onto one, or maybe write some stuff down and have a chew and a pray later on. Um, see what you think. Um, what do we to do with this passage? How do we read it? How do we interpret it? What does it mean for us tomorrow morning? What does it mean for us this week? How do we do the double vision thing where you've got both godliness and wisdom and character for me but also then what does it show us of Christ and what he's like? Um, I think one overarching uh, application for the whole book is the sense in which the glory of God drives Nehemiah. Andy asked us last week, how much do we care? How much do we care about the glory of God and the kingdom expanding? Do we care about these things? And he is grieved as he sees or he, as he hears of the city. He is grieved as he hears the news of Jerusalem and he cares enough to do something about it. I think we'll see again and again one of his overarching drivers and motivations is the glory of God. I am struck as well in the first two chapters particularly but we, you do get this focus on the importance of prayer Different kinds of prayer, as we've said. Chapter 1, much more a prayer of lament and confession. Chapter 2, just in there at verse 4, but this arrow prayer, in the midst of the, the conversation with the king, he prays to the Lord and then he speaks. I take it those, those things aren't accidents at the beginning of the book. The sense in which they, they're foundations for the book. Humble prayer before our great God. Confessing sins, leading others in confession of sins, but also the quick arrow prayers in the midst of life, the mess of life, 
that point where we just don't have the wisdom as to what to say. Wouldn't that be great to have that sense in which your knee-jerk reaction to hardships in life is prayer rather than relying on self first and doing all that we can and exploring all the different options and then thinking, I've not really prayed about this. Sorry, Lord. I think if Nehemiah is held up as an example of leadership, and I suspect he might be, that actually the importance of prayer must be there. And the third one, and we saw this a bit with Esther as well when we did a series on Esther a few years ago. Um, there are clearly right ways to go about things as we engage in life. Sometimes we can be a bit superficial and think, well, God's sovereign. If he's in charge. It doesn't really matter that much how we do stuff, does it? Well, I think he is clearly sovereign, but there's a sense in which wise living really matters. Wisdom for us in how we ask for things. Wisdom for us in how we tell people things. Wisdom in how we lead. Wisdom in how we seek to reach out into this community. How we seek to acquire a building that we can all fit in on a Sunday morning, whatever it might be. It's important that we are tactful and wise. As well as being reliant on God. Again, I'm sure it's no accident that we're let in on the details of these conversations. As a model for us as to how to live. As a model for us for wise living. Godly wisdom. A fourth one that struck me in preparation is that it's just a helpful reminder that God, despite outward appearances, is at work. Because if you put yourself in the situation of the Jews, as they were, they were the cream of the people, carted off to Babylon in exile, and then taken over by the Persians, still in exile, generations and generations in exile. And you're thinking, where is God in all this? Where is he? Is he sleeping? Is he powerless? Is he pretend? Has he forgotten about us? Maybe he's got other things on his to-do list, they're thinking. But no, no, no. You see in Nehemiah that God is still there. He's still working. He's still in charge. He's been laying it on Nehemiah's heart to do something about the temple and the city in which his glory did reside. He's been raising up a people. His mighty hand is still powerful and gracious. And so when God perhaps feels distant or not really doing what we thought he might do or our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, in those times you read Nehemiah and you think, do you know what? God is still in charge. He is still good. And we can keep trusting him. It reminded me of um, that lovely verse in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. Do you remember that one? He is working to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That is, we know what he's doing. And sometimes we can't quite work out the details or his time scale, but we know where it's going. We know he is building his people, he is building a city, he is building the church. Uh, fifth one, don't be surprised about opposition. I think this has been... a A reminder for me this week. You get Sambalat, you get Tobiah, you get Gisham. They're united in opposition against the work of God, despite him blessing, despite him being in charge, despite his gracious hand being with them. It's not plain sailing. We shouldn't be surprised by hardships. Again, I was struck by the parallel with 
Do you remember in Mark chapter 2, when you get the Herodians and the Sadducees, very, very different people, but united against Jesus. Arch enemies who put their differences aside to have a go at Jesus, right? Even right at the beginning of the Gospel. So when God is working, when God is blessing us, when God is blessing his church, we shouldn't be surprised, sadly, of the opposition we might encounter. In his sovereignty, we might love it that he would just blast his enemies out of the way. They would all just be gone. But it's not plain sailing. I was mindful of that praying this week, thinking through the mission at Oxford, but the mission at Brooks as well. Fodder for prayer, thinking, Lord, we want you to to bless your people. We want your message to go out. But as you bring blessing, let's not forget the reality of opposition, of hardships. The difficult stuff that goes on that we just think, Lord, why do you allow this? And yet he does for, for our good and for his glory. Maybe it's to keep us looking to him. We don't get complacent. And then sixthly, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. He is the one, ultimately, who wisely and faithfully and prayerfully and humbly builds for the glory of God. Building his city. Building the church. Building his people. And indeed, he was the one who, despite despite it being God's pure, perfect plan, faced opposition. And in the midst of the opposition was faithful. And through his faithfulness, despite opposition, so the Lord brings extraordinary fruit as he dies for his people. Jesus is the one, finally, who is building the city of God who is building the church. Let's pray. Loving Father, give us give us open ears to hear what it is you're saying to us. Pray with that those kind of scattergun applications. You would cause some of them to stick for each of us. Pray that we might know that you are with us despite perhaps hardships. Pray that we might be a people who pray, people who live, who lead wisely, who aren't surprised by opposition, who who long for your hand of blessing to be with us. Pray that we might see what you're saying to us through this chapter. But more than that, would we be captivated, please, increasingly by the glory of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is the one who truly builds your city, the church, his bride, and that he is growing her in in number and in beauty as we are sanctified and transformed more into his likeness. Pray that we might have a fresh glimpse of his beauty, the beauty of the gospel, 
And that that would drive us this week. Help us please to live for you because we know all that you've done for us. Your goodness and your kindness. In Jesus' name. Amen.